Proverbs chapter uh, 21, if you would stand with me uh, tonight, we're going to read one verse, and this will actually launch us into our our study together uh, tonight. Proverbs chapter 21, verse number one, this is God's word to his people. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. This is God's word to his people. We thank him for preserving it for us so we can read it together and study it together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer once more tonight. Father, thank you for our time together. We pray that in the moments to come that you would be pleased in the way that we think about who you are in light of uh, contentious election season, in light of Christians trying to wrestle through what does it look like for us to be engaged politically. Father, we pray that this wouldn't just be a four-week series that informed what we did yesterday, but would be a a series that would inform the way we think about upcoming elections, how we engage with the people around us um, moving forward. And, And I pray tonight, Father, there are a lot of anxious people, a lot of anxious hearts, because their heart is set on a political party or a person or a policy or just even winning, Father, uh, that is what their heart is set on. And, and I pray for a lot of Christians who find themselves in that particular camp, that their, their hearts would be drawn to your word to remember that we're supposed to cast all of our anxiety on you, and that our hope is not built um, in, on, on earthly kingdoms, but on the heavenly one that will never uh, erode or, or falter or fail. So be with us as we make our way through your scriptures. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. As I thought about tonight, and honestly, um, to my, probably my fault or failure, uh, as someone who enjoys politics probably a little too much, uh, didn't really know how to open this uh, particular sermon, because you just go to bed on Tuesday night of an election, and you don't know what going to happen. In fact, I said to someone earlier today, I would have been well served uh, to go to bed earlier than I did because when I went to bed uh, late, I woke up and nothing had changed and nothing did change until early this afternoon. And so we find ourselves tonight in a unique spot, probably for the majority of the people sitting in this room, um, because this is going to show how old of even I am comparatively to some of you, this is probably the first time that you've gone uh, multiple days without knowing uh, who the next president of the United States is going to be, though some of us lived through the 2000 election. I would like to point out, by the way, that I was only 11 at that time. Uh, Others were voting in it. (coughs) But uh, I, like any 11-year-old nerd, boy uh, was glued to my television as much as anyone probably, uh, no other 11-year-old probably was, to be honest. And so it's a little bit disconcerting to come here tonight and to kind of feel like there's a lot of stuff that still hangs in the balance, and we hear all of the different news outlets and media talking. So you you gather together for worship, and, and the, the sermon title tonight is No Rogue Rulers. Because I just want to open with this statement. No one sneaks onto a throne, and there are no surprise moves into the White House for a God that is sovereign over all things. 
And that looks real cute on um, like a Facebook post. It's amazing how many Christians who were berating each other just days ago um, for not voting for their political candidate suddenly woke up this morning and discovered big God theology and God's sovereignty and we need to be charitable towards one another. This would have been a good principle to apply, I don't know, eight to ten years ago. <coughs> but we find ourselves today wondering what is happening. Some people are elated and others are downcast. Some people think we've got this in the bag and others think we're a long way away. And the truth of the matter is that you're going to have to make a decision about what the next four years, eight years, ten years, fifty years of your life is going to look like in regards to politics. Because here's what happens. Every four years we find ourselves in this exact spot, choosing presidents and choosing leaders. In fact, uh, this is going to come as a shock to some of you, but like you will get the opportunity to vote in a couple months again. You know, won't get as much press because uh, contrary to popular belief, as much as I think that the city council race and the mayor race in the city of Springfield is national news media, Fox News is not coming here. CNN is not coming here. Wolf Blitzer and Tucker Carlson will not be covering the local Springfield elections, but they're coming right around the corner. And the truth of the matter is, probably have something else to vote on in August and then two years from now we vote again and so the cycle just repeats itself and goes on and on and on and on and so it's really easy to get on these big roller coasters of emotions every two to four years and local elections in between of like your the tide rises and falls with how your political candidates go I mean my night was interesting last night because our house race for the Missouri House is still in play. And I found myself last night going, man, this is exciting, this is entertaining. Like, who would have thought that we would go to bed and the, the, the race that we voted in in our little district in Springfield, Missouri, one candidate would be leading by 31 votes. We give me a recount and who knows what's going to happen. And then my heart's like pricked because like I'm supposed to get up here and talk about God's sovereignty over all these things. And so I was reminded again as the, the heart motivation, as it just pops up and down and up and down and flows back and forth, that yes, those things can be entertaining, but if my identity suddenly shifts into I'm up because they won, I'm down because they lost, I'm up because this passed, I'm down because it didn't, it's a terrible way to live my life. Constantly wondering, like sitting in my recliner with a computer looking at all of the different data and trying to place it all together and some of you are like dude you never have I, I you never have to worry about that with me I'm never going to be that person there was a presidential election yesterday I didn't even know well shame on you for not paying attention to the last three weeks I guess so what I want to do with you tonight though is to say okay how do we frame and think about all of what we've talk, been talking about really for the past year and really intensified in the last six months, and really, really intensified in the last month. And so what I want to do is I want to trace through the, the scriptures with you tonight and, and show you that there is no one who assu assumes or comes to power outside of the sovereign hand of God. And sometimes that can be a little bit scary. Sometimes that can be a little bit too encouraging. 
for us, if, especially if we find ourselves in the victorious column, right? If we're in the winner's column, yes, God's sovereign. If we lose, the world is falling apart. That's how Christians tend to act. And when you have good Christian brothers and sisters in Christ who find themselves at odds with one another, here's where we need to turn. We need to turn to, to God's word and remember that we have a responsibility. And so what I want to do is just start in the Old Testament. And so some of you, uh, th- you can turn here. If you turn here, you may not get there by the time I'm done reading. You want to just jot down these verses as we go because I'm going to move. I'm going to, as the King James would say, make haste uh, through these passages. But, but the, what, when we look at the Old Testament, one of the things that we're, we're told and we, we see is the Old Testament shows us that God is completely in charge of the rulers that come to us. Daniel 2, Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 and 21 says, Wisdom and might belong to me. I change time and seasons. I remove kings and I set up kings. So, you know, you you can be tempted to think, well, we have power. We elect people. We put them in office. We can elect senators and representatives who will impeach them. And God says, hey, look, like, yes, you're involved, but you do realize, like, I set them up and I take them down. It's real cute. You think you can organize it around four years and two years and six-year terms and these age brackets and this as if you have some sort of sovereign control. And Daniel reminds us that God puts leaders up and takes them down. Job chapter 12 and verse 18 says, I loose the bonds of kings and bind the waistcloth on their hips. In other words, I can... What God tells Job is, I can take you and I can put you on the throne or I can put you in the servants' quarters. There is not one rank or role that I am not sovereign over. Proverbs 21, verse 1, what we, sa- what we see here. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. One of the most terrifying statements that was said last night by a political pundit was, Just a reminder, God is sovereign over this election, and if he so chooses, he can make things worse than what they currently are. We beg for God's mercy, and we beg for him to not give us what we deserve, and he easily could turn us over to things that are far worse than anything that we could expect. uh, Isaiah chapter 14, we read this, As I have planned, so shall it be, and as I have purposed, so shall it be said, I will break Assyria in my hand, and his yoke shall depart from my people. We watch as the nation of Israel, Moses, faithfully goes to Pharaoh, the leader, the supreme leader, and says, let my people go. And in some areas of the world, he's singular, you know, I'm not going to do that. He says, let my people go, and Pharaoh says, no, and comes back again. Ten plagues later, and the people are released. As if to say, Pharaoh, not only does the water run through my hand with you, Pharaoh, but I will display my glory for everyone to see so that people in Egypt will know that I, the one true and living God, am the one who will liberate when I see fit to liberate. We get uncomfortable because we like to be in control. It's what makes us uncomfortable about things. Someone jokingly put, I get nervous about elections because I feel like uh, it's a group project. I did what I was supposed to do, but I'm worried if everybody else will show up with their part done. We like to feel like we're in control. 
We like to think that if I just make the right arguments, say the right things, things will happen. Consider Psalm 2, verse 8 and 9. I will make the nations the inheritance of my son, and the ends of the earth will be his possession. He shall break them with a rod of iron. There has never, ever been one rogue king put on the throne in Israel, and there has never been one rogue king that was put on a throne to oppose Israel. There has never been a foreign king or ruler that snuck onto a throne. This is what is so terrifying, because sometimes we get what we deserve. And sometimes as a result of a sinful and fallen world, sinful and fallen leaders arise to places of power. We look around and we think, oh, oh, I I mean, I can distinctly remember people complaining for eight years about President Obama and four years now of President Trump and four years of whoever the next president will be. They'll complain about him, too. But they don't hold a candle to some of the rulers that have risen to power in other places. And we become so glib as a society to compare rulers that we don't like with other terrible rulers. And somebody doesn't do what we like as president, they're, they're like Hitler, they're, they're a Nazi. God help us that we never get back to a place where rulers like that exist in our land. Think about Fidel Castro in Cuba. Not one rogue ruler climbs onto a throne. It's not like God turns his back and he's like, oh my goodness, what is Jehoiakim doing on the throne? Go read about when we were in Habakkuk. Just comes in behind Josiah and is like, yeah, I saw what you did with the Bible, but we're, we're not doing that here. Makes a treaty and, and sells a Judah into captivity. They've ar- the southern kingdom already gone, now, or the northern kingdom already gone, and now the southern kingdom is headed into captivity. God is sovereign over that. It, it would be foolish to, for us to read the Bible tonight and, and to look at our uh, current situation and think that somehow, someway, we're exempt from this. There was not one house race. There was not one Senate race. There was not one amendment. There was not one, I don't even know if they still do this, but there was not one dog catcher that was elected last night outside of the sovereign hand of God. That's not a release valve that you're like, I don't have to participate in a society. The Bible is clear. You're a citizen in the land that God has placed you, and you have a responsibility as a citizen to participate in the land. The lowest common denominator that you can do to participate in your land is to vote and participate and take part in what happens. But to act like God suddenly woke up and he's like, I can't believe that all of this stuff happened last night. It's always quiet when we preach on these things because it confronts us where we live. We love to think that we are in control. We love to believe that what we do is like our own autonomy being expressed. But what about the New Testament? That's fine, David. Lots of kings, lots of rulers in the Old Testament. What do we do about the New Testament? We'll flip over to to Romans chapter 13. And along the way here, I'm going to point you in this direction of what does the New Testament say about God's sovereignty over rulers. Not only does the Old Testament teach us that God ordains rulers, the New Testament encourages us to remember that God continues this reality. Acts 12.23 says, I sat my angel 
I, or excuse me, I sent my angel and struck Herod down because he did not give me glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. This is Acts 12.23. It's a pretty, like, I think of in terms of uh, pastors, teachers, missionaries, James chapter 3, verse 1, God will judge them harshly, those that, are, that stand to teach and give instruction from his word. That's a prophetic and powerful warning to those of us who are responsible for teaching God's word. I think Acts 12.23 is a powerful and prophetic word to those who will, who will try to get to places of authority and power. God sent an angel to strike Herod down. He breathed his last and was eaten by worms. Why? Because Herod refused to give God glory. The prophetic warning to us to make sure that even though we want to be participators in, we want to advocate for positions and policies, the spiritual condition of the leaders who serve us is of utmost importance because if they do not give God glory, and the, the primary way that they do that, we're reminded in Philippians chapter 2, is by bending the knee and confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. If they do not do that primarily first and then followed by actions, they will be eaten by worms and they will suffer a penalty of being separated by and from God. Romans 13 verse 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. This already chafes Americans because we're like, we don't want no taxation without no representation. That already chafes at the American soul. And then continuing on, for there is no authority from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Uh-oh. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of the conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. The sniping, sniveling, crack jokes, the sleepy Joe and orange man is bad culture, that exists inside of the Christian world is an affront and a contradiction to what Romans chapter 13 says. Regardless of your political affiliation, demeaning, name-calling, treating people with no respect, referring to people as idiots, morons, stupid, dumb, and other stronger, harsher language, as it befits a Christian, is unbefitting to what the Bible teaches. You may oppose 99.7% of the legislation that is passed by a political party, but nowhere in that opposition are you ever permitted to speak in a way that is 
lacking of respect for the meaning of that person who is, what, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, created in the image of God. There are concerns that face us in the coming days. We're going to have challenging times in front of us. But to stoop to a level of demeaning people and treating them as if they are less than because they don't agree with us politically is the opposite of what God's word instructs us to do. Flip over to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, looking at verse 13. Lest you say, well, that's an Old Testament principle. And you're like, well, just Paul. And yeah, I know you said, Jesus said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. But and that's just Jesus, Paul, in the Old Testament. You don't have any more proof. Okay, well, let's hear from Peter. First Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to heaven to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Notice this. It doesn't say this. For this is the will of God that by demeaning other people and making them feel stupid for what they've done and boasting about your brightness and your political rightness, that you will point people to Jesus. That's not what Peter says. He says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Which, you read this, and you're like, we are free people. In the first century, these jokers were not free. These dudes were ostracized. They were put on the edges of communities. They were not respected. They did not have a seat at the cultural table. They were marginalized, and they were oppressed. And I'm just going to say this, and you can get all upset, and I don't really give a rip. But the reason why this doesn't resonate with us is because for the majority of our lives, we've existed in majority cultures, and we have not faced anything as far as opposition or persecution or being marginalized. And so we read these verses, and they don't hit us because we've never experienced what it is to not have freedom. Live as people who are free. Free in what? Free in Christ. Come restrict us. Come tell us we can't meet. This place has gotten a little bit big here recently. Maybe it's time for a little space-making. Maybe it's time that we find out who's truly in and who's truly out. Who's showing up because they love Jesus, not because of a benefit that it gets them culturally. Maybe it's time that we thin the herd a little bit. Maybe a little coronavirus and a little bit of Christian persecution will raise up a generation who says, I'm bought into Christ for who he is, not what I get. That's what it means to live free. I love my rights. That's why we fight for them. But if my rights leaving or something changes in the world in which I live causes me to bust out on Christianity, then it wasn't Christianity that I enjoyed. Remember Augustine, right? Old dead guy. We always love the old dead guys. If you only 
participate in the parts of Christianity that you like and get rid of the parts that you don't. It's not Christ who you worship, but yourself. And we've got to ask ourselves, what are we married to? Verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I'm going to honor the emperor, I'm going to honor the president. I may not like him as a ruler. I may not like what he does, but I'm called to honor him. So once again, we are reminded that God is in charge of all things, including our rulers. This question then must resonate with all of us, is, is who or what really owns your heart? In the next four years, will we advocate for politicians or are we going to advocate for King Jesus? Or why don't we do a little bit of both? Or here's a thought, we advocate for change on the basis of being residents of King Jesus' kingdom. That he informs how we advocate. That he informs what we do and what we say when it comes to the arena of politics. That King Jesus rules our heart. Who are we going to advocate for to those around us? Well, this naturally leads us with one last question that we must answer, and it's the third observation tonight. Where do we go? Some of you are like, I'd like to go home. I don't even care about Jimmy John's anymore. You just frustrated me because you said I have to submit myself to people who are over me. I know you don't like it, and neither do I. Why? Because the human heart doesn't want to have to submit to anyone, which is why in the Garden of Eden, what is the way that the devil uh, tempts Adam and Eve? Not with, uh, hey, you know, you know these rules are kind of whack. No. Here's what is going to happen if you eat of the fruit. You're going to be like God, and that's what God doesn't want. You, do, you don't need to submit to his authority. You need to be equal with him. That's the ache and yarn and desire of every human heart is to be in control. First Timothy chapter 2, and we'll wrap up with this. Where do we go? How do we operate in this world? David, I don't like it, and I don't want it. I, I don't know what to do. I'm confused. How am I supposed to operate? Well, luckily, Paul wrote to his young protege in the ministry and gave him this helpful advice. First of all, then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful, peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at a proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. Teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Here's what we do. We trust God's guiding hand, even when it doesn't make sense. This is a big deal, right? Because you have no, con- I mean, you have very limited control of who's going to be elected to an office. But if you can begin to trust God's guiding hand with stuff that doesn't make sense to you on a national level, and you can apply that to a personal level, when you don't understand, like, why I don't have any money, or why I have a terrible car, or why none of my relationships seem to work out, or why uh, I still find myself in this particular position all these years removed, 
if you can believe that God's guiding hand is over all things, when it comes to the small things, right, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I trust his guiding hand over here, just like I trust his guiding hand over there. Look, we trust in God's good and guiding hand and continue to serve advancing our ultimate mission, the Great Commission. Maybe this is a wake-up call. Maybe we uh, have been a little bit too bought into the political arena for the last few months. And our Great Commission advance has fallen. Then secondly, I would say pray for leaders. Well, how do I pray for leaders? You really want me to get out my prayer journal every day and pray for leaders? Like, I don't even know them. They don't even know me. Well, it doesn't say here that if you have a personal relationship with the President of the United States or the King of Sweden or the King of Spain, like, that you... Then you pray for the king. Then you pray for the emperor. Then you pray for the leader. It says, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. So you pray for them regardless of their political view. And I'm going to say you pray for them regardless about how you feel about them personally. So how do you pray for them if you're like, oh, I don't really like them? Well, number one, you pray for their salvation. Maybe Christians would have been better served to have spent the last four years praying for someone who exhibited no sign of the fruit of the Spirit whatsoever as he led, that he would come to know Christ. And that people, when they walked into the Oval Office, and this is what we need to pray for for the upcoming election, or the upcoming election results as well, that those, every administration has faith advisors. That those faith advisors, when they walk into the Oval Office, would walk in with prophetic voices and that unlike men who are easily intimidated by places of power or drawn into the trappings of that, that, that when they walk in the Oval Office, their mouth doesn't go dry because they're there on a prophetic mission to proclaim, thus says the Lord. We're not here to advance a church and we're not here to advance an ideology. We're here to proclaim King Jesus. Pray for their salvation. Hey, look, I, you know, your tax plan is great, it's bad, it's terrible, it's awful, whatever. But taxes aren't going to save you, man. I don't appreciate what you're doing here, but that's not the big issue, Mr. President. This isn't the problem, Mr. Speaker, Mrs. Speaker. Your need is Jesus Christ. We need people who walk into places of power and aren't drawn in by the trappings of it. You go, ooh, it'd be nice to stuff and people take a picture when you get out of the car and you can go play golf whenever you want when you're president you know unless there's a president that's bad about that but even then you might be able to sneak away and get in a quick nine we're immediately sucked into the trappings of power and i'm saying christians need to fall on their knees not because a democrat and not because a republican occupies the white house but because their greatest need regardless of who's in there occupying that office needs jesus christ and not so they can accomplish our agenda or our mission or our policies. They need Jesus because if they don't know him, they will spend eternity separated from him. We need to pray for their salvation. We need to, to pray that they would surround themselves with godly advisors. That they would pick people, not even realizing, uh, like picking economic advisors and picking uh, national security officers and picking FBI agents and picking people 
for their qualifications thinking this person is great and a sovereign God is going, yeah, they're really qualified for the job, but the reason why they're in your administration is because they bring glad tidings of good news and great joy. And that God would intervene in regards to mercy and grace for our country. It's possible for Christians to hold to God and country and honor him. One of the ways that we do this is by asking God to intervene. God, we know you're sovereign over all these things, so we need you to intervene. And we don't need you to intervene so our political party will win, but to keep us from going off the rails. And then finally, we need to pray that God would give us the courage to hold leaders accountable at every level. But beloved, if we don't even know who's in the state house, we don't even know anyone other than the president. We have not really taken seriously the call to pray for those who are in high places. And I know some of you that are less politically inclined are saying, why would I waste my time here? Because of the biblical command. And for those of you who are uh, more politically inclined, you might say, well, David, I think I'm going to choke trying to get some of these names out. That's, that's an indicator of a heart problem. If you can't get somebody's name out to pray for them, that's a heart problem. And it's a not a problem with the person you're praying for. It's a problem with the prayee. The one who is offering the prayer needs to get their heart right with God. Because once you start doing that, you start to work your way down a list, and you start to look at some of your relationships that you have with friends and people that you can't even utter their names because your friendship is so on the rocks that you can't even barely stand to be in the same room with them, and you can't do that with them either. So what God starts to do is he starts to use even the way that you pray for leaders to correct the, the wrong ways that you think about people who are close to you. But we don't want to do that because we like this little comfortable feeling to be angry. Right? Things didn't go the way I wanted them to go, so I get to rage against the world. Just scroll through your social media today. In the last three days, at least half a dozen times, I passed confessing Christians, who I know are members in good standing that I see here quite regularly. None of them were in the college ministry, so this isn't calling anyone out in this room, that said, you're going to have to excuse me as I rant for a moment. And I'm thinking, maybe instead of ranting, maybe instead of getting angry, maybe instead of hollering and shouting, maybe if Christians would commit to fall on their knees and beg God for mercy, you may not get it right now. You may never get it this side of heaven. But the calling here is to so trust God that I would like to develop what I call a theology of sleep in regards to politics. I confess that it was a little bit difficult for me to go to sleep last night. May, not because I was worried about anything. I just don't like missing out. I like the risk based part, right? I'm a weirdo. I get it. It's okay. But we'll move on to other things that are far more interesting next week. But this idea of, of seeing these things, like, here's the deal. In everything that you do in your life, you've got to ask yourself this question. Do I really believe that God is in control over these things? Do I really, really believe? So, 
yesterday when I finally went to bed. I, I went and I, I already voted. I prayed and I went to sleep. And I didn't toss and turn, meaning because it was still voting. But I'm not going to toss and turn tonight wondering what's going to happen. I've done what I'm responsible to do. And I'm trusting the Lord that He is in control and that He is working everything out right for each brother for our ultimate good. And sometimes it doesn't always seem that way. So we're going to trust Him. But then we're going to live every day in light of pursuing Him and His will. Let's pray together.